Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Levi, Kill Bill is the movie we watched this week. Kill Bill Volume 1, to be exact. 30 seconds or less, please give me your review of Kill Bill Volume 1. 30 seconds or less, I think that Kill Bill is just a beautiful nugget. And I'm using nugget in the sense that every other Tarantino movie is twice as long it's just a nugget of a movie movie, as Tarantino said in an interview yeah. I watched. I mean, it is. Right off from the beginning, we'll get to this, but it he tells you, like, this is a this is supposed to be a cinematic experience. And I think that's my main takeaway from this, too. You know, after watching Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown in the previous three weeks, Kill Bill is definitely a departure, I would say. Uh, from those first three films, and I would say it's it's the most standout, different film. Um, but I think that's intentional. I think that I think that he was trying to recreate a cinematic experience that he had when he was maybe a kid, and uh, and he puts together this hundred minute rip roaring revenge flick uh, that's just chock full of great set pieces and really entertaining stuff. Um, but at the same time. Uh, we could get to it at the end, but I'm not. I'm not really sure if this is my favorite Tarantino movie. In fact, I know it's not. <laughs> really? Because I. Yeah. That's where we're gonna divert. This is, I okay. think, my favorite Tarantino movie. I interesting. It, it's to put it into words. You know, the ones that come before this, uh, mm-hmm. Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, especially, are just so very. Re- you know, we talked about how the realism that's in them, like the weird kind mm-hmm. of idiosyncrasies with characters that are kind of grounded in reality, but put through this weird mishmash of a setting. Yeah. And after this, we get inglorious bastards and we're getting hateful eight and Django unchained. And those mm-hmm. are genre films kind of writ large. And for some reason, the kill bill movies, I don't know if it's just, if he had the advantage of all, you know, he took, so long kind of getting to this movie and he was thinking about it during Pulp Fiction. I wonder if he had the advantage of time to really kind of nail down his beats, what he, what he wanted to make, what he wanted to, to reference. And maybe it's just my, I really enjoy old samurai movies. And (laughs) I was disappointed to learn today that he was talking about his reference material and he brushed aside Kurosawa films, which are largely the samurai movies that I reference and mm-hmm. have seen. And he was talking about how, oh, that's, you know, that's highbrow. That's, it's good. It's good cinema, but the stuff that he references, the stuff that he loves is the, is what we would consider grindhouse, the more gritty samurai films made by people I've never heard of. Yeah. So, well, you know, I, I, there was a, there was a strong grindhouse element to this movie. But that is interesting. You know, I, I want to talk about that departure because I, I'm interested to see now, watching these films in sequence, is this a turning, is Kill Bill a turning point for Quentin Tarantino? Because I, I think that the most recent, you know, Tarantino, Tarantino film that I had watched before uh, starting on this little adventure here was Django Unchained. I watched it a couple months ago uh, for, I think, the third time. And 
I I want to say that it's it's pretty different from like uh, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, and Jackie Brown. Um, but I I I want to watch it with the with this new lens, and that's kind of the great thing that that I'm really enjoying about this podcast journey that you and I are embarking on together because it really does put in context uh, the the progression of a director in a way that you know I think is in the back of your mind sometimes when you're watching these films, but this is a way that we can really get tangibly into it uh, as to, as to what his progression is as a storyteller on uh, in the art of cinema. So I'm excited about that. Let's, let's just start off with the beginning of the movie here. He wants you to know right at the beginning that this is a, this is a, it's, it's almost a grindhouse experience really. You know, um, we see it opens up with the Shaw scope, the Shawscope uh, graphic with like the old timey music on it. That's like, sounds like it's been run through multiple compressors over and over and over again. <laughs> and it's being run through this like dirty tape, this, this like weird audio drum sequence, um, which is akin to like the 20th century Fox, but, for, but for the Shawscope, uh, you know, intro slide. And then it goes into the, our feature presentation thing, which is like this, this fade in of, uh, you know, this spider web of feature presentation graphics coming together <laughs> into this single thing. And I'm pretty sure that they use this same, this same exact feature presentation slide in the Grindhouse movies. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I remember seeing it, um, you know, I'd, I'm trying to think of where I've seen it outside of this. It's one of those ones where not growing up in the age, yeah, in the era that Quentin Tarantino did, I feel like, I still know these references despite <laughs> not actually seeing that in a cinema. And I'm a little, I'm a little jealous. I mean, I remember when I was going to the cinema as a kid and like, this was before, I mean, now you go and it's like brought to you by TNT, the, we know drama. <laughs> like, uh, and there's like 20 commercials beforehand, but like, I don't know when I was a kid, there was like the slideshow and like the movie trivia slideshow. Um, and then I don't even remember. I mean, before that, I'm pretty sure you were just sitting in the dark listening to music. Um, yeah, that's as far back as I get. Although yeah. we do nowadays in what will be whoever the Tarantino is of this current generation <laughs> will probably riff off on the turn off your cell phone. I know screens <laughs> like the Alamo draft that's house totally and some true. of the ones around here. But I do remember that they used to have, like, a slide that said, like, and now our feature presentation. Like, they used to be like, okay, guys, the previews are over. Now here's the feature presentation. Um, and I don't know. Do they still do that? I don't know. I guess Not really. Maybe, is, is it Regal that does, like, the roller coaster thing? I think that they kind of have it. <laughs> God, that's so terrible. But... The- <laughs> But that's I've been doing that roller coaster for a long time. <laughs> I think it's funny that you bring it up because yeah. it is. I mean, these are our experiences in the same light, and it's mm-hmm. super. It's cool. It's a really. Yeah. It's really nice that that sort of thing <laughs> is being uh, maintained. You know, it referenced back to it's. It's yeah. like a history of oral storytelling. I mean, you mm-hmm. there are things that just get recycled, and I think it's cool that he goes back to it, and I. <laughs> <laughs> think it probably turned some people off. I, yeah. It's one of those ones where people who aren't into film are like, this is weird. You know, they just, right. the, the homage is lost on some. Well, he's putting you, it's, he's almost, it's almost like he's trying to transport you back in time and 
and put you in this setting, get you in the right mindset for this film. Um, and he does that with that. And it's, it's like, kind of funky and you start dancing yeah, to it. And, I like it. You know, I we talked about this a little bit with the opening dialogue for Reservoir Dogs. It's I really think that he just has I don't know if he does it intentionally or if it's just like his he just intuitively kind of does, but it feels like a palate cleanser. It gets you mm-hmm. it gives you a second to catch your breath and be like, "All right, it's movie time." I like that. I like that a lot, actually. That it is. It's it's you know, sit back, relax. I got a I got a flick for you to watch, so just enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we go into this from from the uh, our feature presentation. Then we go to a title slide that says "Revenge is a dish best served cold." Old Klingon proverb, <laughs> which is another. It's that's yeah. the thing it, we talked about the his sampling from things, and this is. I was just thinking as this popped up that it's he's referencing other movies he's you know normally they reference famous quotes from historical figures or you know they give um sort of a title card with like a history lesson that's like in 1887 the persian empire was i don't know why i said 1887 in persian empire anyways they you know they try and give information and he's just dicking around he star trek which consequently comes from the era that most of this material is borrowing from right well sort of i mean star trek was in the 60s right yeah i think it started in the 60s but yeah um but also i feel like he does that intentionally to get you to laugh i think it's like a like you said it's a palate cleanser it's something that gets you ready to watch the movie because it's like Guys, this is going to be a fun time. This isn't going to be... You're not going to have to worry about... You know, in Reservoir Dogs, we're not going to open up on some dude bleeding out in the back of a car. <laughs> uh, you know, we're not going to... You're not going to have any Mia Wallace scenes of her overdosing and getting stabbed in the chest with a syringe. You're not going to have to deal with Ordell. Uh, like, this is going to be a fun ride, guys. And just right off the bat, he's like, sit back, relax. You're going to watch a movie, get a little chuckle, and then let's start this adventure together. So I love that man. I thought it's it's really cool because it's three slides that really <laughs> don't have anything to do with the story. It's literally like just getting you ready to watch, getting you in the right mindset. I think that's really cool because who else does that? Who else does that as a director? Um, it's just yeah, three things that are kind of completely out out of the film. But then we open up and we have the bride who is sitting there on her back and she's all bloody. And uh, Bill is talking to her, and I've been, you know, I've been trying to pick up on Tarantino isms as we go through <laughs> this journey together. One of the things is, and I'm going to use the correct term here because our good friend Wesley on the Bald Move Facebook page corrected me. It's not practical music; it's diegetic music. So nice. that's 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 what we should say from now on. It's but good yeah, thing the, that we're <laughs> this many episodes in, and we finally got the correct. Term eh, we're only four in. We're halfway through, uh, but it, yeah, it's diegetic music. So music that's that's you know being played in the scene, either on the radio or in this case live in person, um, or maybe in the background of a bar. Like so, diegetic music is definitely a Tarantinoism. It is utilized in this film, but not as much as it is in all of his other films. Oh yeah, he steps um, way back, and yeah. to, to good effect, I think he really yeah when he no, does totally. use it, it's it's stellar. 
Yeah. So that's that's one thing that diegetic music. The other thing uh, is long takes. You know, long, long shots, long takes. That's definitely a Tarantinoism, especially when two people are talking to each other. And I think here's another Tarantinoism, and I've kind of seen it. I saw it multiple times in this movie, but we open up on it, and that is shooting the reaction shot while somebody else is talking off frame. Like, you don't see the person who's talking. You just hear their voice, and then you see the person who's listening to them. That is like a complete Tarantinoism. And it happens, you know, most prominently in my mind, it happened in Pulp Fiction when we open up and Marcellus Wallace is talking to Butch in the bar and explaining to him that he needs to throw the fight. It's like a two-minute scene where we're just holding on Bruce Willis while we're listening to Ving Graham's talk. Um, and in this one, we open up on Uma Thurman, you know, suffering while Bill is off-frame off talking to her and telling her, you know, telling him about, telling her about how he's, is most masochistic right now with a perfect villain monologue oh my god and and the hand coming in with the with the handkerchief that says bill on it it's just like perfect yeah um, we gotta as we kind of move through that's one of the biggest set kind of categories of notes is just the set dressing like yeah. costumes backgrounds i think they're what really kind of ground this this movie and give uh-huh. it and let it kind of breathe as it really gives itself the right spaces for it. It's uh, I mean, he, he we talked about in last cast, you talked about how it's great to see Tarantino start to hone things. And I feel like kill bill is, is he seems so comfortable as a filmmaker in this movie. Like, I feel like he's got a hundred percent, um, he's a hundred percent comfortable with what he's doing in this film, uh, and I think that you can see that progression through his first three films to when he gets to this point. He knows exactly what, what he wants to say. He knows exactly how he wants to say it. He knows exactly how he wants the audience to react to it. And then he—it's—it's almost—I would almost describe it as effortless filmmaking on his part in this in this movie. It seems like he had a lot of fun doing this movie. Um, yeah, I agree. A hundred percent. That is yeah. it. He feels this is his movie. This and right. you know some of that probably comes from the success of Pulp Fiction, and you know he did a bunch of smaller stuff, and mm-hmm. he certainly worked between then and between Jackie Brown and uh, Kill Bill, and but it was yeah. plenty of time, and I think he was comfortable. You know, he reached a point right. where he could make a film that he wanted to make, and nobody can tell him otherwise at this point. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, I I said that I would research that last time. I found an interview um, with him. uh, It was with Cinescape. They were interviewing him uh, when when, uh, Kill Bill was coming out, and they asked him, what were you doing during your time between Jackie Brown and Kill Bill? This This is what Tarantino said. I was relaxing, enjoying myself, living my life, and watching a whole lot of movies. I was also working the entire time, but just writing. I have a ton of material to show for it. There was also some... Something kind of cool about just writing after being in the public eye for a while. I got in the public eye by being a writer, and it was great to just dive into the material. So I started writing again and began with a World War II script in Glorious Bastards, which turned into three separate World War II scripts. Then I started writing Kill Bill. So that's what he was doing in between. Watching movies and writing in Glorious Bastards and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, apparently doing some pre-production on Kill Bill. How um, old was well. he when he did... Pulp Fiction? I feel like it would be depressing for me yeah. to know that. Like I, no, I think done... he was 30, 
two when he did Reservoir Dogs, but don't right. quote There's me. There's still that. time. So yeah, he was you know mid thirties, and then uh, let's see how old is he now. Um, <laughs> I just tried to Google QT because that's what I write <laughs> in all my notes. QT. Uh, let's see here. This is great pod. Uh, he was born in 1963, which would make him what 50, 52 at this yeah. point. Sounds right. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think he was in he was right. in his forties when he was making Kill Bill. All right. Uh, um, yeah, and then but I also love that after we get the uh, you know it's your baby, boom, like great opening to the film, and then right there the fourth film from Quentin Tarantino. Like he just puts it right out there. He's like, "I'm back, baby." He's, and I remember, I actually remember watching the preview for this movie in the theater, and that was like the first thing that popped up was the fourth film by Quentin Tarantino, and then like the miniature 747 flew in over the top of that. So he's a fantastic uh, showman, yeah, for himself. He does a great job of. He's hard to miss, especially we've watched so many interviews at this point that he just you get him started and. He'll just talk, and he'll talk movies, and he'll talk his movies, and I think he's he's just got a knack for so much of the business. Yeah, it's just instinctual and impressive. Yeah, he's he's got cinema just running through his veins. Um, so we go to chapter one: the Deadly Viper Assassin Gang and Squad, Squad. Sorry, uh, Deadly Viper Assassin Squad, and uh, the chapter one is called Two. And this is just a great scene with Vivica. Like, what a great way to open the movie. Like, and the thing that I love about this movie, this this opening scene, is that it reveals a lot about this movie. Like, the way that they speak to each other is very much like I just love it because it's the way that two dudes in Reservoir Dogs would talk to each other. Like, there's no change just because the gender has changed. Like, these chicks are badasses, and they talk to each other like fucking badasses, and I love that. Um, and also, this action scene is so good. I love the fight between her and Vivica A. Fox. The choreography was yeah. so great, and I I can't remember if it came before or after, but I remember Gladiators around this time, and all of that action is just so fast cut between shots mm-hmm. that you don't ever get a sense of what's really right. going on. And watching these two just go at it with knives. And knife fights always just, I grip the chair. Because it's <laughs> just, oh, the knife is there. And if you get cut, it's, I'd almost rather be shot and have it over with. Well, I could feel, I don't know what it is, but I get antsy whenever there's a blade in a fight scene. Because there's like the, like the, <laughs> that noise. That. The, when, yeah. That's, and then like the. And then just seeing like the blood, like even I was watching Batman Begins like a couple weeks ago, and there's like the <laughs> stupid scene where he like cuts two guys uh, because he's like doing his ninja stuff and he's fighting um, Razagul like in the mountains of Himalayas, and he's like trying to hide between these guys, but he's got a cut on his arm, so he like slices two other guys' arms so that Razagul can't tell who's who. Anyway, I don't think I illustrated that very well, but even when he's <laughs> cutting these guys' arms, I'm just like, ugh, God, I can't, I can't deal with. Can't you really should knife. sterilize your blade between cuts. <laughs> I know, right? But that's the th- like even before the knives come out in this scene, the just the punches and the landing of the punches and like the whoop, like the sound design of this whole thing 
it hits so hard. And actually, what it really reminded me of is uh, I just watched Spectre this past weekend. There's a scene between, um, and this isn't a spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen Spectre, but it's a scene between David Batista and uh, Daniel Craig, and it's a fight scene, and it it's like a pummeling fight scene, like. Boom, boom, boom. You can feel those hard punches throughout the entire thing. I got the same exact feeling from this fight between Uma Thurman and Vivica Fox. Well, this is the, the, you know, he starts with the, they're in a house. They're in the suburbs yeah. somewhere. The kid gets home and there's just oh, a shot of them in the living room. Just oh. knives, just kind of doing that back and forth <laughs> move that everybody's yeah. like, oh, was that it? Oh, it, you know, the. And Dude, the just bus that with the bus point, pulls up. One point perspective with the bus and yeah. the it's so comical because of the yeah. setting. It's tense, but Well, I, I just love that mo I mean, it is a it's kind of a perfect cinematic moment in the middle of this brutal, hard hitting knife fight. Them pausing as the school bus pulls up, you see the doors open and the way that Vivica Fox knowingly looks out the window, you just like know what's happening, and it's like this perfect moment because we're in the middle of this hardcore fisticuffs battle to the death, and then you insert just the, you know this 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 scene that is so suburban and like. And you know the tension that's going to be there as soon as that girl walks through the door. And you wonder, like, you don't know what's going to happen. Like, is Uma Thurman just going to kill Vivica Fox, like, in cold blood and not really care about it? And then they, like, come in. So it, it's great. And then it goes into the uh, it goes into the kitchen scene. The interesting thing about this film, um, Levi, and I, I wanted to talk to you about this, is, like, Uma Thurman in this movie is just as much of a brutal, cold-blooded killer as anybody else who's on her hit list. Like, she has to be on the same page as all of these people in order to be in the Deadly Viper Assassin Squad. But they make her so sympathetic, even from the very beginning. And, I, yeah, I understand the... I think, yeah, obviously opening with her getting shot in the head, that, that helps. But how do we how do we start to root for this person? Is it just because we've been told she's the good guy? Um, I'm I'm just trying to think about it. It's impressive that he leaves the explanation of her departure from the assassination squad Mm -hmm. to the second film, because it does. He just leans so heavy on just her personality and her character. I think her not killing her, not killing her in front of her daughter until um, Vernita <laughs> she Green basically forced does. her hand. Yeah, but yeah. Vernita Green kind of forced her. She was all ready to yeah. meet her in an honorable way, um, mm. you know. And then we jump to the scene with her coming out of her in her coma. Yeah, where you know we kind of get a sense of how the the squad works. They they have that they do have like a weird sense of honor. Right. There's a code. I think the the treatment of her inner coma and the yeah, kind of that the told, I mean, that, suggestion that totally, of rape. Yeah. Yeah. And by that point, I think when she comes out of that, when, when they do like right. the wiggle your big toe, I think you're rooting for her because she seems an underdog and right with a, well, with she, an odd sense of honor, whatever it may be. 
Right. I mean, that's the thing. In, in this in this opening scene, I think that there's a moment. Yeah, we get the kick-ass battle between her and Vernita. Um, but then there's the moment where she says, you know, if we if you wanted to get even with me, I'd have to kill you. I'd have to kill your husband, and I'd have to kill your daughter. And then you're like, oh shit! <laughs> like I think that that's a moment. And then obviously, when you realize what's been happening to her in the hospital um, while she's been in a coma, you realize that this is a woman who it's like. Uh, didn't like I spit on your grave? Didn't that come out like in the seventies? The original version of that. It's very similar to that in that it's like you got to root for this lady because she's been through the ringer. And you know exactly who the culprits are of this whole thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm just trying to kind of build that up because at the beginning of the movie, she's just kind of a badass. But we, we're on her side, basically, from day one. Um, and I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to figure out what those film elements are that get us on her side. Because she's just as, bad, she's just as much of, a, of an assassin as anybody else in this gang. It's kind of a Neanderthal sense of justice, for sure. And yeah. that's, but that's a, a common trope in itself i don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. seen death wish with uh charles bronson and i think he gets a no. a thank you at the end of the credits um uh-huh. or in memory of but it's a movie where his family gets murdered in chicago uh-huh back or no in new york and he just goes on a killing spree uh-huh. and it just does not it, the fact that his family was killed was all it takes for you to just be like, yeah, he needs to, <laughs> he needs to level the field, and that's yeah, that's the fun of movies is you don't have to really think about the moral quandaries involved. There is, it's very easy to when there's a whole field of gray to be, you know, who your hero is because the movie makes yeah. it obvious, and you're able to, yeah, you know, regard regardless <laughs> of what's the right philosophical answer to right. the question. You know that if somebody tried to kill you, and certainly if you thought you know they killed your child, yeah, murder's totally cool from That's, the sense of the victim. Right. There's a primal. There's a primal justice to it, and that primal justice is is revisited multiple times in Tarantino's work. We talked about it last week with Jackie Brown. Like, did Ordell was justice actually served when Ordell was killed? Um, and that's a question. That's a philosophical question. But if you're watching a movie, it's a lot goddamn more satisfying than seeing him get arrested and then presumably put through a six month trial. And then you know, <laughs> you know, it's it's like yeah, this is this is tidy. It's and in a nice plead out, and then they plus the movie's called Kill Bill. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's a revenge film. Like yeah. you can't call it a revenge film if they just go to jail. Exactly. Um, I, did you notice the, also when she's talking to Vernita about how to, about how to get even, um, she says, you know, I'd have to kill you. I'd have to kill your daughter and I'd have to kill uh, your husband. And then she goes, that'd be about square. And then she like draws half of the square (laughs) that she drew in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I was just missing the dash line. Yeah. Such a weird moment in Pulp Fiction by itself. It is a super weird moment, I, and we didn't even talk about it. I was like, I wanted to ask you why that worked in Pulp Fiction. I think we're a little bit beyond that, but I do love the callback there, and that she's doing half of the square instead of the whole square. I don't know. I just thought it was good. Um, I don't remember why I thought it was cool that she was doing half the square, but I wrote it down in my notes. So, <laughs> so it must be important. It must have been cool at the moment. <laughs> um, this is also the first time I think that we see Tarantino 
shooting real action. Um, you know, there, it, I, you know, I, I can remember in Reservoir Dogs a Mr. Pink scene when he's running down, and I did call that out as like a cool action sequence. But this is like the first time we get extended action scenes from Tarantino, which is funny because a lot of people associate him with being a very like gory, violent director, but he doesn't really shoot a ton of action scenes before Kill Bill. And especially, he's gotten, I think Kill Bill is kind of where he kicks it off. And mm-hmm. it's funny because he had, you're right, he had that reputation before Kill Bill, but yeah, something about this one, he just, I don't know if he figured out how far he could get away before the MPAA started <laughs> to kind of push him down. And even in this, you know, they have to use the black and white scenes. Right. I think somebody pointed out on the forums that... Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to the black and white. Oh, man. Because uh, well, I want to do that call out for the forums. Yeah, so we're 30 minutes into the podcast and we're about yeah. five minutes into the movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fucking good opening sequence, Oh, like, yeah. And I think you great. can... I think this is... We're talking about elements that get repeated yeah. throughout, for sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's kind of the great thing about watching all these movies and sequences. They really do start to build on each other like a delicious Tarantino cake. Um, <laughs> so anyway, she kills Vernita. She goes in the uh, pussy wagon, which is parked out front. And then she opens up her notebook and she crosses off Vernita's name. But we see that Oren Ishii has already been crossed off. So that's another cool thing, man. We're jumping around in time. Very Tarantino-esque. Yeah, it makes um, you feel like you're coming into the middle of the action. Which right. always kind of works. I mean, that's... I heard, I've heard, and I don't know what the veracity of it does, but that's why Star Wars starts with Episode Four. At least originally it started. <laughs> was, so it felt like you came in at the midpoint yeah. of the story. Yeah. I also love that she kept the pussy wagon. Because she presumably got the pussy wagon, parked it somewhere, flew to Japan, killed Oren Ishii, then flew back to America, and then picked up the pussy wagon so she could drive it to Vernita's house. I didn't have time to watch before the <laughs> the podcast, but I wanted to go back because I thought the same thing. I was like, wait, how did she get the pussy? And I was yeah. putting it together in my head, and I was like, fuck, I need to go back because yeah, I, think she she has, I think she has the sword in the yeah. truck. like. On the gun rack in the back of the truck. Yeah. Well, and Oren is already crossed off, so she already went to Japan and came back. So presumably she has a Hattori Hanzo sword, yeah. neglects to take it to the door to get Vernita <laughs> with it, which I... Well, no, that's a great thing. This is the wonderful thing about the bride in this movie is that she kills people using their own... Like, there's an honor in killing them using their own specialty. Like, she needs to kill Oren with samurai sword. She needs to kill Vernita with a knife. And she brings the knife with her to kill Vernita. So it seems like she's like, she has to meet them on a level playing field in order for the, you know, this. we talked about this weird code that they have to, uh, so I think we should keep an eye out for that about how all the other ones die. Well, because, yeah, because um, when she moves ahead, they she gets to the less honorable yeah. of the assassination squad, as I recall. Right. Yeah, and I don't want to jump forward to the next movie, but but it is interesting that she she meets them on their own playing field. She needs to beat them at their own game, basically, which is cool. Um, then we go to chapter two. Uh, we get kind of a, a recap of the church in El Paso. The one thing I want to touch here that I thought was really cool is there's a scene when the sheriff comes in and he bends down and looks at the bride's body, and we cut to him and it's like normal coloring. We cut to her and it's like this green coloring and it looks like zombie coloring. 
Um, and then it's, and then the that green coloring kind of wipes away as we cut back to the sheriff and he removes his sunglasses. So it kind of reveals that this is a POV shot from his point of view with sunglasses on, which is another total Tarantinoism is using POV shots a lot of the time. And I love how he calls it out because, you know, POV shots are very commonplace in filmmaking. But in this particular instance, Tarantino calls it out and says, this is a fucking POV shot. We are looking at the bride through the sheriff's eyes behind his sunglasses, which I thought was kind of cool. Do you think this relates in some ways to the shot when, when Vernita sees the bride in the door and we get mm-hmm. the like, wah, wah, we get the alarm oh, yeah. and the flashing red. I've never put mm-hmm. this together. That is he by showing this green glasses removing that that is a literal point of view from Vernita Green, and I think then from Oren because mm. I think Oren does it as well. That it well, occurs. I don't know because I think it's both ways. Because it's also this is another thing that he uses a lot is looking up from a dead body, a POV from a dead body. And so we, this is very apparent in Kill Bill um, when we had that scene looking up at all four of the Deadly Viper assassin squad from from the brides. Well, I guess she's not actually dead, but she's dying. But this scene is it's also at the end of of Jackie Brown. We after Ordell gets shot and his he dies with his eyes wide open. But after he gets shot, we go to a POV shot of him and then Jackie and uh, Michael Keaton's character come up over his body. So it's kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting reuse of that as well from a Tarantino esque perspective. But one thing I wanted to ask you, Jesse or <laughs> Levi, oh. Oh. <laughs> um, Jesse was my former podcasting partner. For anybody who doesn't know, anyway, uh, the thing I wanted to ask you is: Are you okay with the veet voot veet voot? Because <laughs> it's a little goofy. I. Really dig it. I think it okay. it fits the tone of the film. It's it's a comic book in a lot of ways, yeah. and that you know they talk about seeing red and yeah. No, I dig it. Yeah, I also uh, I want to go to the next scene here because we want to keep on time here. But um, I do really like that when she wakes up from the coma. Like it's hard for. It's hard for us to do this from the viewer perspective because we know that four years have passed, but it's great. Like Uma Thurman's performance when she wakes up, and for her, it's been like a flash. Like she was in the church in El Paso, and now she's waking up in the hospital, and she gets up and she looks at her belly, and she's not pregnant anymore, and she freaks out because it's like in a second, her life has gone from one thing to another. So I thought that was really great. I also love, I don't know if you caught this, she looks at her hands and she reads her lifeline. And she knows that four years have passed. Oh, that's all I can think. Yeah. Look at is Uma Thurman has enormous hands. <laughs> and then when we see her wiggling her big toe, I go, Uma Thurman has enormous feet. How big is Uma Thurman? <laughs> I'm looking at her IMDb page. She's actually seven four. <laughs> she played for the Houston Rockets for like three years in their development, and that's why she can read her lifeline so accurately. Is it's yes. <laughs> three feet long? But I thought that was cool. It was like this little survival thing that she, like, it's a survival instinct that she has. Well, is that even she could read her own lifeline. Her reaction, you know, like, she immediately leaps out of bed. Yeah. And Which just, I think anybody would do. Yeah. And the atrophy, like, catches up with yeah. her all of a sudden. And Kaplunk. she just immediately, but just that her mental acuity, like, bam, she's immediately up, fakes being back down, gets back. Yep. 
and leaps for it and and doesn't even break stride when well my legs aren't working so she starts you know the commando crawl to the door and then buck just gets the supreme justice of this entire series well i do like it because in this movie there it's sure it's a it's a long form revenge flick but tarantino also throws in short form revenge numerous times like short form revenge stories into the movie and the and the buck uh, murder at the very beginning it's like you got to be on board with the, with this guy getting whatever's coming to him this, um and it is very satisfying in watching him getting his head pummeled into the door um from a cinematic perspective buck was one of the first points where i wrote down like costumes like Everything yeah. about him just reeks douchebag because he's got oh yeah the glasses he's got a chain necklace he's got the bracelet he's got the watch he's got rings mm-hmm. he just it's amazing that somebody really took the time to for such a <laughs> for a character that has you know that thirty seconds of screen time and right. they just doll him out and then the pussy wagon is of his car of course that makes of course perfect sense of the, now you're not even surprised this is definitely another instance though of a tarantino movie where cops do not exist assassins? yeah in pulp fiction cops do not exist in kill bill cops definitely don't exist because this guy got straight up killed and then uh and then the bride stole his car and she's driving around in it she kept it She's driving around it. It's pretty easily identifiable. <laughs> I read somewhere but, that he drove that around while filming. Well, of course he did. As just an <laughs> attention getter. Also, did you notice that the guy who, who Buck brings in is like the guy from all the Adam Sandler movies? Only because of his voice, just that creepy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I also, it's interesting to me, too, going back to a, a Tarantino callback. He loves the rhyming names because we have Kill Bill, Pulp Fiction. We have Zed's Dead, and in um, and Vincent in Vega. Kill, well, no, and, and in Kill Bill we have Buck who likes to fuck. Yeah, like it's it's these weird like I don't know. I mean, I guess it makes some memorable characters, but I do think it's kind of great. It's very similar to the callback from Pulp Fiction because we have Zed's Dead. Uh, you know, Butch kills Zed and then steals his. Um, motorcycle, and he's got the little key ring that says Zed on it. Um, and then Uma Thurman kills Buck, and she takes his car it's a, that has the pussy wagon key ring. So it's a little bit of a callback there as well. Well, it's like. rhyme and alliteration because Hattori yep. Hanzo. I, it's the way that you oh, yeah. make, I think, a simple character more memorable. People mm-hmm. like Buck, who are a short moment of the film, become, you know, it, it buys him more space mentally when you look back on the film because it's more it's easier to remember the characters when they have that's why all the characters have you know the deadly viper assassination squad they all have snake names right yeah and and you know it's good too it's like like i said we have this nice little revenge story packaged up at the very beginning of the film to just clue you in that the rampage begins now um which i like uh so yeah, so uh, she goes into the car. She's trying to move her big toe, and then we go into the anime scene. What did you think of the anime scene? It's one of my favorite parts because it's huh. so unique. Mm-hmm. I think it it gets around 
the if they had filmed this scene for real, this series of scenes explaining yeah. Orenishi's background, it may have it would have made me uneasy, I think, seeing right. a, an actual character um considering kind of the gravity of her her background. Right. It may have it may detach you a little bit too, I think, from sympathy for Oren. Totally. Uh, yeah, because you, you were talking about like why do we root for for the bride? Mm-hmm. But then I asked like why don't we root for Oren? I mean, she's really yeah. from the she same. Can... Bra- the only difference is that totally. she did not have a child and get killed by her her friends. But otherwise, it's a a little bit of a, a not a well, redemption she's got a sympathetic story, story for yeah. sure. I, I I like that take, Levi. I like it a lot because I feel like if this was shot live action, it would be harder to not identify with Oren. Um, I also like how they introduce elements in the anime, in the anime scene that are perfect for anime, like the blood that just like explodes out of people like a fire hose. Um, but then they also, that happens when we get to the, the scene in, in the, in the club. Yeah, Like when right. she starts cutting off limbs, then we get the fire hose blood again. That's and we when get it, it when Oren cuts off the dude's head, but it's introduced in this cartoony fashion, which kind of eases us into it. That's um, fantastic. That's uh yeah. That's it's a, pretty interesting. I I liked I liked it. I liked the little departure there and I also liked the nod. I think that that's it's it, it, there was this era where anime got some cred like and I I'm not a big anime fan by any means, but there was this era in the early 2000s where anime I feel like was a lot bigger than it is now, or at least from an awareness perspective from my perspective. Because, like, you had this scene in Kill Bill, and then, like, you had the Animatrix coming out with Matrix Reloaded, um, which was, like, a whole series of anime films. So, it's kind of it kind of helps plug it into this era. Yeah, I um, think that's a... It was a... It does help to place the movie, and that's... It's odd, because that may be something that's looked back to... Looked, we look back on, and, yeah. you know, that's Tarantino referencing the time that his film is in, yeah. you know, while all of his other moments are kind of odd throwbacks. I just, I also, I just enjoy it also because it's unique. <laughs> I think that it's a, yeah. to be able to detach a story, to explain that character and then to return to the film is one of his greatest risks that he's, he's taken. Yeah. I think he, and given what he's done, I, it's, it's, impressive to see him continue to take those you know michael bay did a lot of explosions everybody went oh cool he does a lot of explosions (laughs) and he's still just doing a lot of explosions still doing it yeah the great thing about it is that you know we talked about how comfortable tarantino seems making kill bill he's comfortable making those risks he knows his audience and he says and he i I feel like he he knows that people aren't going to be like people are expecting something from him they want to be surprised. And they also, it's the thing about Tarantino films, and, and I think specifically about Tarantino fans, is that you're on board. You're just ready to see it. You've seen a lot of atrocities. You've <laughs> heard some incredibly divisive, horrible language. Like, But you're on board. You're on board for these cinematic experiences. And so this is just another step where he's like, all right, you're on board for all that shit. Here's something new. And you're on board for it. It's good. You know, they reuse this particular style and i would love to go and see where and if this was 
sort of came from somewhere else because they do it in Harry Potter is the most prominent film I can think of. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Where they take in the last film and they give the story of the Deathly Hollows. They cut into a, a, a digital story. You know, it's, it's animated basically for that particular mm-hmm. part to tell a separate story. And it, it works really well. Yeah. So, I, it's a trope um, that I like, and I, I think you have to be incredibly talented to pull it off. But when it right. does, it it's a good way to tell a story in a story. Absolutely. I agree. Um, so we, we go to the next scene where we get to see how Oren took over the Japanese Yakuza underground. And I just want to call out Gogo Yabari here because she is basically the Battle Royale character. <laughs> uh, and we, I think we called this out in the preview cast, in the, in the prologue for Tarantino that that Battle Royale is one of the influential films and like yeah she's like straight out of Battle Royale the like schoolgirl assassin. Well and it also um, makes me think of every minor Bond villain ever the, oh, the yeah, henchman totally. who has yeah. the weird quirk but uh, right. it gets the hero every time because <laughs> well you know uh the bride has no problems laying people out with a samurai mm-hmm. sword you throw one ball on a chain for that or, <laughs> and she's got to really mix it up to to win right because you're like how bad could this actually be and then you're like holy shit that's really bad um yeah i love it and i love the bond villain analogy as well because like gogo is she's has such a small part in this film and yet she leaves a huge impact just like a jaws or an odd job or a Baron Samedi, like any of the any of the Bond henchmen, it's pretty cool. Um, so, oh, I just want to call out Lucy Liu. Lucy Liu fucking kills it in this movie. Yes, this is her best rendition, <laughs> and I think that I read somewhere uh, Tarantino had was looking for a, a Japanese actor, mm-hmm. and after speaking with Lucy Liu, like chain, he rewrote the part to cover the Chinese American heritage wow. as well. I she's just so good and you know great great heroes have great villains. Both her and even Vivica A Fox was such a small part in this movie from a time perspective. They're both so good. They're just great villains. And but I love Lucy Liu. I love how she when she goes over cuts the dude's head off. <laughs> like holds it up and the huge fountain of blood that spurts out. And this is another moment where I'm looking forward. It's he does it in Inglorious Bastards, and I'm trying to think backwards if he does this. Where I'm going to say this: the character actively acknowledges that they're going to switch languages, right, <laughs> to make a point, and right. really it just helps the listener transition from reading subtitles to being able exactly. to actively listen. So it kind of pulls your eye around on the screen a little bit. You're like, oh, I can stop trying to read out of the corner of my eye and focus wholly on her face when she makes that (laughs) face. Oh, so good. There's a, it's just a great, I I love this because it's really a wink to the audience. Like (laughs) to illustrate how serious I am, I'm going to say this in English. It's a little (laughs) wink to the audience. It's like, okay. Uh, Which I really like. Um, And then I love that when they're walking to the club, like the whole crew after they've been introduced, it's very reminiscent of the beginning of Reservoir Dogs, in my opinion, like the slow motion walkthrough with the with the funky music going in the background, it's like here's the here's the, here's the gang and they're coming in and they're gonna you know hold court in this club. I really like that. We got the five, uh, six, seven, eights live, yep. <laughs> doing their whistle song. I really wish was it Travelocity that used that song? Yeah, completely ruined it. Some for Travel. Me. <laughs> 
Yeah. I definitely like, had the soundtrack to this movie. It's one I'd never oh, yeah. owned a lot of CDs, but this is well, and I didn't really <laughs> own this one. I stole this one, but I had yeah. a burned copy of the Kill Bill soundtrack. A <laughs> I love the yeah. When I was you know when I was in high school, I had the, I made this little TV show with my buddy Robert. It was called the Friday Show with Robert and Eric, and we would show it in school. I do remember that show. And for the theme song for that show was the dun 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 which is the same song that they that they play when they're walking into the to the club. I feel like so you also isn't that that's on that's RZA, right? He yeah, did. I mean, all the original music in this in this movie was done by Rizzo, which I think is really cool. Um, also, and then we see the bride flying into Tokyo. This is the first time that Tarantino leaves the United States in one of his movies. Uh, in fact, it's the first time he leaves Los Angeles, which <laughs> is pretty interesting. <laughs> and he makes sure um, to do it with a map and the plane flying right. across. And also the miniatures. Like, they they use blatant miniatures for the for not only for Tokyo, but for the airplane like there's all these subtle hints in the movie that like hey guys this is a movie just relax this is a movie i think that might be a little bit of a commentary we talked about it before everybody likes to bring up violence in tarantino's films um and he a time and time again he he retorts with you know it's movie violence this is a movie it's almost a genre of film like violence is pretty much just a genre of film at this point it's separate from the real world. And this might be another hint there that like, yes, guys, this is a violent movie, but it's also a movie that <laughs> we were using fake little planes. <laughs> so do, so cool your jets a little bit. I know we're, um, we're cramming so much of the movie into such a short time period, but yeah, just real quick, Sonny Chiba and the, oh my his God. Tori Hanzo scene is so, so spectacular. It's my favorite part of the movie. It gets so it's, it yeah. goes from comical to serious so yeah. fast in yeah. this beautiful from the the talking to Japanese and Hitori Hanzo's uh, mm-hmm. his assistant being <laughs> such a little asshole yeah and the I always like to do the do you understand sometimes yeah. to irritate Liz and <laughs> oh man and then it goes into the reverence the mute you know we talk so much right. about. You know, generally Tarantino uses kind of funk music or, mm-hmm. you know, he uses a lot of up this. And then he goes into this acapella song in the background as she's looking at the swords. Yeah. And you, without explaining who Hattori Hanzo is, you understand you know. the reverence that you need to give his craftsmanship. Right. Man. You know, the whole scene, it's so good. And Sonny Cheeb is so good in this role. Um, it, it's, it's. Yeah, it's it's great. It's it's my favorite part of the movie. I love the premise and like and then she has that sword for the rest of the movie and for the second film and you also see that it has the same marking on it that Bill had on his samurai sword. So you know that Bill had a had a Hattori Hanzo sword. Like the whole thing is really great as a setup. Um, and it only adds weight. I think this might be another thing that helps us root for her as she moves forward in her journey, because this is a guy who was made a sacred vow that he would no longer create weapons of death. And he breaks that vow in order to arm her against bill. So there's like, it's almost like a, there's a, there's almost a biblical (laughs) endorsement of this revenge. It's not biblical. It's the, 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 er myth, like the Joseph Campbell hero with a thousand faces. It's she, you know, the hero always is armed by a higher power. 
yeah. at some point. And this is that, you know, he for all of the lack of linearity in his movies, he makes sure to fit that moment into his film. She receives a gift that will help her defeat, you know, the the monster. Yeah. This is this is the Obi-Wan moment of this movie, which is cool. Um yeah, and then and then we go into the fight scene. So I do want to talk about this on the forums because there was quite a discussion about the black and white. Um, Jovial Falcon from New Hampshire, uh, <laughs> who has like the best signature. He said he has shit. You shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. Which is a great, great callback to Reservoir Dogs. Um, but he says one thing I never found out was whether QT made the call to go back to black and white during the last big brawl, or was it because of the blood and the studio wanted him to. Uh, we had Davey Mack. He's from Tokyo. He's been a he's been a longtime listener of this show for the the three weeks that it's been around. But uh, he he says that uh, here in Japan, both the color version and black and white versions are available. Though in theaters, I believe they only showed the color version in Japan. Um, said I wasn't here back then, but my wife was surprised by the black and white shift when she watched the American version with me a few years back. Uh, he says I know he changed it to get the R rating, but I really like the black and white. And then finally, Pavlov's Bell uh, Reef confirms that the decision for black and white was to secure an R rating, but Tarantino said that he intended the switch at the House of Blue Leaves anyway as an homage to the Shaw brothers and director Chang Che specifically. Che is known as the godfather of Hong Kong cinema, and he often switched to black and white for the bloodier sequences. So, uh, you know, the black and white, it's interesting because you can tell it's done in post because there are scenes in this movie that are shot in black and white. Um, and you can tell that there's just a, a deepness and a richness to the to the to the frames because you you light it differently when you're shooting in black and white, and you could tell that this is kind of just swapped in the black and white. But did the black and white? Did you like it? Did do you think it enhanced the scene, or would you have liked to see it in color? I, it's okay. It's not the you know of all the moves that we kind of talk about. Were they good? Were they bad? The black and white is the one that could probably go. Although he does. Yeah. The way he transitions out of it with uh, the they go up into that room to fight towards the end of the scene and then they cut and it's the blue background and the silhouettes fighting. Yeah. And then the lights come on and the color returns. And I think he he uses it masterfully. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's I don't know that you need that much blood. He certainly uses it, but. In a sam, you know, if you go back and watch some of the samurai movies, the ones that I've seen, half the time it's just, you know, they swing the sword, and regardless <laughs> of whether or not you actively saw it connect, the right. the pose that everybody takes from the guy kind of like leaning <laughs> back, like, yeah. and the samurai just kind of holding the sword out, like waiting for them to fall over. That to me is the more the the most powerful part of the callback. And I think the black and white yeah. works. It's fine. I would be curious to see it in color, watch them yeah, back to back too. and see how I feel about it. Cause I've only well, ever the, seen the black and white version. The funny thing to me is that Tarantino does a lot more realistic gore in his other films. Like this is cartoony. They, they, they she's chopping like people's feet off and, and like these fountains of blood are spraying out like a shower. Like it's, it's it's cartoony, so it's kind of funny that that he had to change it in order to get the R rating because 
I mean, I look at Mr. Orange laying in a puddle of his coagulating blood at the end of, of Reservoir Dogs, and I'm like, that looks way more graphic, in my opinion, than like these kind of cartoony, you know, um, limbs flying off left and right. It's but, for me. It's the graphic part is not as much the the, the swing, the connecting mm-hmm. blood. It's when they pan out and there's all the bodies. And I think they oh, do a yeah. fantastic job of making sure that that body count really matches up. Because there's so yeah. many people she kills. And they're all just... Uh, uh, <laughs> in the background. Yeah. And it's so unsettling. It's right. so good. They masterfully, too, you know, by calling them the crazy 88, you know exactly how many people she had to kill. Which is cool. Oh, the, like, well, no, they... I know we don't want to reference the next one, but I'm pretty sure in the next one, Bud, uh, one of them, Bud and Bill are talking. One of them goes, I heard she killed like 88 guys. And he goes, no, nah, there's not 88 of them. Well, then why do they call themselves <laughs> that? I don't know. <laughs> oh, well. I wonder if somebody has done a, a body count, though. Yeah. Um, and then I, I just want to talk about this final scene between Lucy Liu and Uma Thurman. Another great scene. Like the little water uh, bamboo fountain going back and forth like bloop bloop and then like um you know just just interesting like honorable it's an honorable fight like you know Luce, uh, Uma Thurman gets slashed in the back and she's almost dead but she, you know um she doesn't quite go for the death blow there Lucy Lou doesn't and then Lucy Lou gets caught in the ankle and Uma Thurman doesn't quite go for the death blow like they want to make sure that they're there's this honorable thing about like hit hitting somebody killing somebody when they're at full strength it kind of permeates throughout the movie it's like uh, you know they won't kill the bride when she's in a coma in the hospital um sleeping and you know uh she's and also uma thurman isn't gonna slash down uh lucy lou until she's ready to fight again which i think is kind of cool and then the brains are also kind of fun i really love that uh Ishii apologizes as well for ridiculing you earlier i apologize it's just it is it's that's it acknowledges the fact that the two of them come from such a similar background Mm -hmm. and that you know that that they won't necessarily make it easy on one another or anishi still threw a ton of people at her but they do kind of accept I don't, yeah, it's that it's that samurai code. It's the right. You know, they make the goof in uh, Austin Powers, where he's like, "Dad, I'll just go get a gun and we can <laughs> shoot him." Right. But no, that's not how evil works. Exactly. And it does yeah. it. And I like that you call it that shot with the little water tipper because it it's that that single point perspective, just looking on mm-hmm. the two of them across. That in the foreground, that's a very, like Japanese gardens are set up in a similar manner where there is, as you kind of walk and there are these moments where you're really supposed to to look and there is a foreground object and there's a midground object and there's a background object. Mm-hmm. And we get that full sense in that fight. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I shoot a, I shoot a little bit of video, and uh, it, when people ask me about like how to frame up a shot, I always say that as well. Like it's it's a cinematic staple is that you get something in the foreground, you get something in the mid round, you get something in the background, and if you frame them up nicely, you know, you know, you could start off by relying on the rule of thirds. It becomes an interesting looking shot, and so 
uh, it's an interesting thing that you bring up from a Japanese garden perspective, how they utilize that as well. It, it's almost like cinema and, you know, a an ancient art kind of melding up in these two things, which is cool. And then, of course, um, it's snowing, which adds an element of yeah. environment moving. Yeah, it's just such a it's good great. final fight. You know, and it's, it's what really you what good. you expect from a guy who who just worships these old films. You know, he really he does them a, a real service yeah. with this. I also like how I feel like in if these fight scenes were shot today by a modern action photographer, they would last like 35 minutes each. And I like how they both have like kind of quick ends to them. Um, you know, the Vivica A. Fox one is just like, boom, like knife in the chest, fight over. And then this one, you know, I feel like they could have stretched this thing out into this long epic samurai battle. But it's much more, it almost reminds me of, you know, doing the Star Wars callback again, Obi-Wan and, and Darth Vader. Like it's not some kind of extremely interesting you know, drawn out action sequence, but the drama behind it is what makes it so interesting. And we already, cool. we already had our, our complex yeah. choreography. We had the crazy 88 scene. And so that <laughs> kind of satisfies your larger, the, the viewer's bloodlust. And then you're able to, <laughs> and now the masters fight. And while the crazy 88 right. died in moments, this fight, it goes on for, I think just a little over five minutes after, which I, was just tracking because Lucy Lou had said, you know, you won't last five minutes if you're tired. Oh. They go just over five minutes. Interesting. That is cool. Uh, yeah. And then we, and then we cut to, um, cut to our trunk scene, our classic Tarantino <laughs> trunk scene. It's gotta Ends be, in, it's it been every time. movie so far. I'm definitely checking this off on every, uh, every film. Um, and then we get Sophie in the hospital talking to Bill and then, um, and we're going to Kill Bill Volume 2 with the line, Is she aware her daughter is still alive? Written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Pretty good. So uh, just real quick, um, I don't know if you want to do this or not, but uh, but we have you know kind of a quick thing here. If you had to rank these first four Tarantino films, since we're kind of halfway through the Tarantino canon, how would you rank the four? Wow. For a guy who doesn't like awards, and then you put me up to <laughs> ranking them, I'd have to go. I just want to know what your subjective just, opinion just for, is. Yeah, for my personal opinion, what I would turn to if I had these four in a row and I was home with an afternoon and nothing to do, I'd probably go Kill Bill, Reservoir Kill Bill Dogs, one. Kill Bill Volume 1, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown. So Kill Bill is your first choice. Correct. Okay. I would go see I would go completely the opposite. I would go Pulp Fiction one, Jackie Brown two, Reservoir Dogs three, and Kill Bill four. Nice. So just and that's just like our subjective opinions and um but I I think it's kind of interesting. You could see kind of where we're both coming from on these movies. Uh so that's that, man. Next week we got Kill Bill Volume Two. I'm very excited about it. And that's the thing, like even though I rank this one fourth. I still love all these movies. Like right? it's that's, not like that's any of them are bad. That's what makes that question so difficult. It's like, right. well, if any, you know, if if one was on TV, doesn't matter which one, I'd watch any yeah. of them for sure. Exactly. And yeah. I'd probably make Liz sit down and watch them with me. <laughs> You've got to watch this. This is a fantastic film. I need you to see this. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but ne- yeah, next week we're going to be watching Kill Bill Volume 2. Go to the forums, forums.baldmove.com. There is going to be a forum there for Kill Bill Volume 2. Uh, tell us your fan theories, your favorite characters, your favorite moments, favorite behind-the-scenes scoops, and just anything you want to talk about. There's a great community on forums.baldmove.com. You can also write us an email, directpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week for Kill Bill Volume 2. Until next time, I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Cut.